Hello, this is Sengyao from the ASEAN Speaks team. With the specter of rising interest rates and market volatility, our guest speakers from Maybank's research team will look at past episodes of interest rate hikes and its impact on the securities market, especially the degree of vulnerability for markets in ASEAN. As the earnings season comes to a close, we ask our Singapore banks and Philippines conglomerates analysts what surprised them in the results. And last but not least, we also tap our Malaysian telco analyst about his thoughts on Malaysia's decision to bring forward its 5G plans for commercial use by 2021. Who are the winners and losers because of their exposure to this development? So sit back and enjoy the market intelligence brief. Chuak Bin, our regional co-head for macro research, will moderate the session for today. Hey, hi, good morning. It's uh, Monday, 1st of March. Uh, so just to recap the markets last week, uh, generally weaker and under pressure, the S&P 500 index recorded its biggest weekly decline in a month, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite Index suffered its worst drop since October. Uh, the 10-year bond yields has risen from below 1% at the start of the year and actually touched 1.6% on Thursday last week before retreating. Markets are concerned that a sharp economic recovery with a successful vaccine rollout, plus the passing of the US $1.9 trillion stimulus package could stoke inflation and bring forward the timetable for the Fed's QE tapering. ASEAN equity and currencies uh, didn't see as bad a sell-off as you know, the tech stocks as well as Northeast Asia markets. But although some of the ASEAN bond yields, particularly Indonesia and Philippines, have seen quite, a, quite, quite some sell-off. Uh, so I guess one of the questions we're asking ourselves is whether ASEAN is also vulnerable to the massive sell-off seen during the uh, sort of repeat of the 2013 taper tantrums. Bear in mind that episode ASEAN equities fell by more than 20% and the current sort of currencies fell by more than 5%. Uh, we think that ASEAN is not immune but to the shock of uh, rising US bond yields, but perhaps it's not as vulnerable. Bear in mind that current account positions are healthier, foreign reserves have been rising, inflation is lower. And ASEAN never saw the massive foreign capital flows this time compared to the period uh, preceding the 2013 taper tantrums. Uh, actually, and actually, foreign ownership of ASEAN equities, particularly Thailand and Malaysia, are actually near historical lows. Uh, so it seems like the QE money during the GFC flowed into emerging markets, including ASEAN. But now the QE money seems to be flowing more into the tech or new economy sectors, and particularly more China and Northeast Asian markets. Uh, there is a possibility that markets may be overreacting to the risk of inflation. And early tapering, Powell recently reminded the U.S. senators that even when inflation does rise, the Fed wants it to cede above the target inflation target for some time before tightening and raising rates. Uh, currently, when we check Bloomberg consensus, markets is pricing in a tapering of QE in the first quarter of next year, and the first Fed rate hike only in 2023, which is still quite some time away. Um, our oil and gas analyst has raised the forecast of crude oil up by $10, so now it's 55 to 60 uh, for this year, inflation forecasts have therefore been adjusted for a couple of countries, including from Malaysia, you know, uh, to 2.6 percent this year from 2.1 earlier uh, forecast. Uh, for the Philippines, to 4 percent uh, from the previous 3.8, and as well for Singapore, headline now we're looking at 0.8 percent. So all still within, all picking up, but all I think still within the comfort zones of most of the central banks. And lastly, I think the good progress on a vaccine rollout globally and a major drop in new cases. Global infection rates have dropped by half from the 5 million cases a week now to about just 2.5 million. I think sharpest declines seen in the US, UK, South Africa, Israel, and Portugal. And good news as well, in some ASEAN countries, uh, vaccination is starting in Malaysia and Thailand. So for this call today, we have Anand to update on his latest ASEAN strategy. Andy on the FX outlook, I think we saw reservations given the big moves in Aussie dollar and uh, British pound. Dylan on his take on the three Singapore local bank fourth quarter earnings results. 
Jackie on her conglomerate's report and how they are performing. And lastly, Chi Wei on the Malaysian government's 5G infrastructure plans. So let's kick off with uh, Anand. Uh, Anand, what, what are the main highlights and changes in your views in your latest ASEAN strategy fortnightly? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So in, in ASEAN Plus for this edition, you know, you, you get a very intangible sense of uh, growing optimism uh, among our heads of research across the region. You know, 4Q reporting has been... Uh, uh, have been winding down over the last two weeks. Malaysia was, was pretty much the last country to have a slew of reports. And generally, uh, the, the, the quarterly numbers have been either in line or ahead uh, of analyst expectations pretty much across the region. Uh, when you put that together with the fact that we are seeing greater uh, momentum uh, in terms of vaccination programs, the general bias amongst analysts and heads of research uh, is to be more optimistic on their index targets uh, as well as their stock-specific calls. So... You know, over the last two weeks, we've seen some significant upgrades in sectors like banks. Uh, you know, credit costs are coming in below expectations. And our, our expectation that, you know, interest rates will stabilize this year is also good news for NIMS. So that's happening across the region. Uh, also, commodities, as, as Hugbin just mentioned, you know, besides crude oil, we've also raised our expectations for CPO prices. Uh, and that's had a very good impact uh, on our plantation calls. Uh, and also consumer uh, on economic recovery, especially into the second half of this year. Tourism, we've been upgrading stocks like uh, AOT in Thailand uh, in expectation of a recovery in tourism uh, once you know, vaccination and herd immunity is more visible. Uh, and of course, tech. You know, tech has been a big outperformer uh, in countries where we do have a tech sector like Malaysia, uh, but we feel there, there are more legs there and we've been raising target prices. So overall, you know, there's generally a, a rather optimistic mood uh, in, this, in this edition. So, Adam, do you think the ASEAN equity markets are, are vulnerable to kind of a major sell-off that we saw during the taper tantrums and given the rising bond yields? Um, yeah. It looks, like last, yeah. It, looks like, it looks like last week, you know, ASEAN was pretty uh, sheltered and, you know, actually held up pretty well. Yeah, I think you mentioned some of the fundamentals, uh, you know, uh, uh, supporting that that low beta sort of resilience. You know, fundamentals are a lot better on, on the, at the macro level compared to the last taper tantrum. And, of course, foreign flows have been, you know, foreigners have been selling some of these markets for, for years and Malaysia being a case in question, but other countries as well, like Thailand, uh, Indonesia as well. On the equity side, you know, the, the fixed income side is a little bit different. But on the equity side, you know, uh, foreign outflows really have been uh, uh, not something new. So you know, it's not that much flow to leave these countries if they choose to sell anyway. But there are a couple of other reasons as well. You know, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a very low beta sort of region. You know, the, if you look at the indices, they're chock full of stuff like banks, utilities, uh, commodity stocks, you know, there's hardly any tech or new economy stocks which are highly sensitive to changes in discount rates, which is what we're seeing in the US now. You know, people are uh, factoring in higher discount rates, and that's having a huge impact on high growth stocks, especially tech stocks. No similar issue uh, for the ASEAN indices or, or stock markets. Uh, and of course, valuations as well. You know, we've been lagging uh, for the longest time other major geographies like North Asia. Uh, the U.S. Uh, in terms of performance. So from a performance and valuation perspective, it does look attractive to hide in ASEAN, low beta markets, very digestible valuations. That should be a, a very good combination for a defensive investor. And I think we've, uh, you know, finally, you know, rising interest rates or stabilizing interest rates, uh, at least, is not bad news for everything or every asset. You know, some assets like banks and insurance companies which have been suffering from declining interest rates in terms of margins, uh, we, can, we can see more optimism in these sectors. And these are big sectors in our ASEAN indices. Uh, so, you know, for all those reasons, uh, I, you know, it does look like ASEAN should outperform in this kind of environment. 
Um, do you want to recommend a few uh, specific names or sectors, you know, given that it's this, uh, you know, inflation condition, conditions kind of continue as well as the rising bond yields? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the financial sector is a very obvious one, not just banks, but also insurers. Uh, if, you know, they've been under a lot of pressure from declining interest rates. If the tide is turning and interest rates are stabilizing, you should see NIMS stabilize as well. And in terms of uh, returns on their, on their securities portfolios as well, that's their fixed income portfolios, the returns should be a lot more stable as well. And not so, many, not so much capital gains anymore, but in terms of interest rate increases uh, and returns from, uh, from uh, the interest income uh, from these bonds, that should be uh, uh, better as well. Uh, I think uh, you know, if the rising rates are also indicative of strengthening economic recovery, then you do have the, the usual... Uh, uh, economic recovery plays uh, to 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 go with as well. Uh, consumer sectors are pretty big uh, in many ASEAN countries, uh, and combined with the vaccination programs, we have a lot of consumer stocks uh, to recommend uh, across the region as well. Uh, and as mentioned, finally, in the commodity stocks, you know, like uh, in oil and gas exposures uh, in Malaysia and palm oil in Indonesia and Malaysia as well, uh, we do see uh, a lot of upside there as well. So I would go with financials, uh, commodity plays. Uh, as well as consumer, uh, to be among the three sectors I would focus on. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, let's bring in Andy. Andy, um, so you've uh, you've changed the outlook and some of the forecasts for some of the major currencies, I think after some big moves over the past month. Can you highlight the main changes? Yeah, uh, morning everyone. Um, I, I, I We revised the outlook on uh, some a few major currencies and then uh, in the ASEAN space, we actually revised uh, pesos uh, slightly weaker. Uh, uh, we also revised the Taiwan dollar uh, as well, but in ASEAN space, it's typically just the peso, uh, whereas the rest, we kept it uh, unchanged, including the renminbi. Uh, on the Aussie, Kiwi and Sterling front, uh, we upgraded our outlook on Aussie, Kiwi and uh, Sterling on, on the back of a few things. Uh, one is the uh, reflation trade gains. Uh, gaining traction. Uh, and I think uh, Hubbin highlighted it just now in terms it's reflected on the bond uh, flows. Second is the, um, uh, that, that, that's underpinned by accelerating uh, vaccination progress and uh, stronger economy indicators. Uh, apart from uh, cyclicality, uh, I think vaccination progress uh, also determines the winners and legats in, in, in the FX front. And I think sterling is quite key. Uh, it's an outperformer on the vaccine uh, front. So the lead premium from the vaccine front actually uh, led that as well. And uh, I think if some of the comments from the British um, uh, officials, uh, the, the central bank officials, uh, highlighting to some extent, extent uh, fading prospects of a negative interest rate uh, sort of policy uh, may have helped as well. Uh, and then the fact that they also have a pent-up demand in terms of uh, um, spending thereafter because uh, the, the, the consumer demand potential uh, might go actually help to boost growth as well. Uh, on the Aussie front, I think about a lot of it is on the commodity uh, sort of driven. If you look at the uh, Aussie figures, we are actually revising Aussie up to uh, end the year at about 82, 83 cents. Uh, one of the main reasons is, uh, of course, the, the, the reflation story, but um, there's uh, base metals have actually lifted it up, especially copper prices, uh, risen about 17% uh, as a result of that reflation team in part. Uh, and also the fact that I think uh, uh, the, 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 so in terms of the policy front, 
uh, there's still uh, lower risk in terms of uh, any further increase in, uh, in terms of uh, risk of upswings in the policy. Uh, but there's still risks uh, in terms of the Aussie-China Aussie -China tensions. On the peso front, we are actually revising it because of, uh, I think, expectations of um, uh, softening of the revision of the reopening expectations. So on that basis, we actually revise it upwards uh, to price that in to some extent. And uh, in the interim, the signs of that rising U.S. Treasury yields uh, could pose some challenges for Philippine bond flows. I think Moody's cautioned uh, potentially lower revenue collections in the, in the coming months as a result of the recent measure to seek uh, that six to lower corporate income taxes to support the economy recovery. So we try to factor that in to some extent. And uh, to end off, uh, a recent update on our FX fair value does indicate that PESO might be modestly overvalued in uh, in real effective exchange rate point of view against its partners. So we're trying to uh, price in a bit of some more modest adjustment. So Andy, I was looking back at uh, 2013, you know, table tantrums, and uh, you know, just checking how what happened to some of the ASEAN currencies. And I noticed that you know, in that episode, which was pretty stressful, I guess the rupiah, the peso, and even the ringgit fell by almost 9%, essentially. You know? So do you think you know um, we could see a repeat of that? I think, uh, yeah. So um, just reading the International uh, Institute of Finance, uh, I think that their, their argument is that for Asia side, and you highlighted that earlier, uh, current accounts are better. Uh, in fact, uh, the deeper the market flows in in Asia and ASEAN is slightly better than what it was in 2013 when we saw the initial taper tantrums when Bernanke highlighted that. But yes, you're rightly pointed out. Um, the question is, uh, which currencies are more exposed in ASEAN or Asia? Uh, I would say Indonesia rupiah will be still exposed to some extent, uh, although it's much better condition compared to the uh, in 2013. Um, uh, in terms of their dollar, uh, reliance on the dollar in terms of funding is still there, but uh, the question is um, how much more they can adjust if there's any uh, uh, surprise on the taper tantrum. Yes, Ringgit, uh, there is still some risk as well, but uh, uh, we probably are in a sort of different paradigm for Ringgit. Uh, Ringgit in the past during the taper tantrum could move 10, 15, 20, 25 cents. Uh, but I think in current paradigm, uh, Ringgit might be a bit constrained in its move. So you might not see the same level of uh, shifts uh, as what we saw in uh, in the initial taper tantrum move uh, uh, in the first phase of the taper tantrums in 2013, 2014, 2015, uh, the, the first uh, uh, sort of phase of taper tantrums. Thanks, thanks, Andy. So, Andy, uh, Harwin, it's yeah. Leandro here. So right. if we look at the trend of the US dollar in the past year or so, it has been a weakening. So with all these... Uh, uh, stimulus that is coming in and the uh, divergence of what Fed is saying with the with the US dollar yield. Do we yep. expect the dollar general trend on the DXY index going to reverse uh, or going to be continue to be weak or going to be reverse? And do we how do we expect uh, the central bank to actually react uh, uh, to the divergence of the what Fed is saying and what the, the bond market is saying? So for me, I think you know the 1.9 trillion is a is a massive you know relief bill. Uh, it's almost like nine percent of US GDP, and uh, I think we have folks like you know Larry Summers has come out to say that it it that is too big, right? That it's uh you know three to four times the size of what was done right after GFC, and instead of a boosting growth, we could stoke inflation. So I think we have to watch for that. Typically, a big relief bill leads to a huge import demand for the US, and it actually weakens the US dollar. And you know because and, and the demand for Asian goods goes up and supportive of trade, um, but if um, if it's too much, 
and ends up showing inflation, then the markets may start pricing in an earlier, you know, Fed tapering. Uh, even though Powell has come out to say that you know that's still quite some time away. So, so I kind of have to keep a, a bit of both doors open. Particularly, a, a, a massive U.S. stimulus uh, is is negative on the dollar. You know? um, and of course, you know how how ASEAN reacts also will depend on their own domestic circumstances. But bear in mind that Bank Indonesia and BSP have their own current QE programs, and I think that they may have to exit earlier from the bond buying programs. Uh, if there's pressure on their currencies. So I think that's something to watch as well. Yeah, we, we entered the, our forecast for dollar uh, is just to reassure you, uh, our forecast trajectory assumption is uh, dollar still softening. But bear in mind, there are two things. Uh, dollar is a counter-cyclical effect. So if global growth does rebound outside the US, uh, typically US tends to weaken as well on episodes of, uh, and strengthens on also periods of broad market risk of. Uh, but uh, I just want to highlight in the short to medium term, uh, there is a possibility the dollar could still see some short term in the near term. I think there's risk aversion flows due to global bond sell-off uh, that have been highlighted spilling over to other uh, asset classes. Uh, second is this diversion uh, theme of uh, COVID improvement and, and have been only highlighted the, the stimulus. So we expect the dollar bounce to be actually moderate and temporary. Um, uh, on the Fed side, you, your question about reassurance uh, uh, Fed reassurance more effective if uh, price increases is slow. Yeah, yeah, believe I think markets is actually in the process of unwinding some of their existing long bond bets. Uh, I think uh, reports of about fifty billion position unwinding uh, in uh, vanishing liquidity. So uh, the question is the assurance from the Fed and other central bankers will be crucial. Uh, so I don't think it will be too much of an issue in terms of necessarily leading to uh, quick sharp inflation for now. Uh, but um, like I highlight just now, dollar still softening, uh, in my view, mildly into end of the year. There will be some support for dollar in the near term. So we might see that, uh, but it will be moderate and temporary. Let's move on to Tillin. Uh, all the three Singapore banks have reported their fourth quarter earnings results. So, so Tillin, what are the main takeaways and uh, any surprises? Thanks, Agben. Uh, morning, everyone. So all three banks uh, came in line or slightly ahead of expectations. Uh, we have three key takeaways and one surprise. Uh, number one, operationally 2021 will remain challenging, but we seem to be past the worst. Um, all three banks reported customers are looking to invest this year, and this bodes well for loan growth, where guidance is for mid to high single digits, especially out of North Asia as well as Singapore. Number two, NIM seems to have bottomed, but it'll uh, probably tread water for some time. Uh, there is no clarity as to when they will start to go up. Uh, the steepening yield curves will help, and so will the large CASA inflows that these banks have enjoyed. Around 60% of their deposit mix now is CASA, uh, but loan pricing uh, is also, pricing power is also pretty limited at this time. Uh, number three, free trajectory is looking up, especially for wealth management, where all three banks reported higher fees in 20, uh, 2020 than 2019, uh, as well as for IBNA as, and brokerage. Uh, loan fees and credit cards may be among the last to recover, especially for credit cards, you need to see more border reopenings and more spending to come through. The surprise in a way, was that asset quality was coming in uh, far better than that was expected. Uh, 
uh, not really seeing any major sectoral distress uh, across um, any of the major sectors or even uh, regionally. Uh, and even vulnerable sectors such as SMEs have actually held up pretty well. Uh, loan moratoriums have fallen to about 1% to 3% of total loans. Uh, guidance is for credit charges uh, coming in at the lower end of the range. And actually, it may look like they'll actually land uh, lower than what management is guiding for. Um, I think the extraordinary measures that the central banks and governments have put in uh, place have been contributing quite a bit to that. Um, also, we think the dividend caps will start to uh, be relaxed this year, but unlikely that they'll be fully removed, um, at least for 2021. So, Tilan, given the results, how would you rank your order of preference now for the three banks? Mm. I think the top number one preference is OCBC. Um, you know, they've kind of lagged a little bit um, in, uh, out of North Asia, and I think so they, they have the better sort of delta to catching up. Um, they've got a new CEO, Helen Wong, who is a, a very uh, old China hand. She's got a strong track record of leading um, HSBC's uh, North Asia business, so I think they will have a head start there. Uh, following OCBC, is DBS. I think, you'll, again, you'll see some decent growth coming out of North Asia for them, um, as well as their funding franchise in Singapore should allow them to um, see, be amongst the first to see some turnaround in NIMS. Uh, but they are starting from a high base. And our least preferred is UOB at this stage, uh, fairly large exposure to SMEs. Uh, we've seen, uh, some, uh, on a relative scale, we've seen some um, increase in NPLs for them. Um, and I think that's something to just keep uh, a watch out for. Okay, thanks, Dylan. Um, Jackie, on your Philippines conglomerates report, so how are they faring this pandemic recession? And I think which, I think that nine listed, uh, you mentioned, which are doing better and which are under pressure. Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, so a conglomerate's performance is directly correlated with its sector exposures. Um, in general, those that have sizable exposures to non-essentials like GT Capital, Alliance Global, and DMCI Holdings, um, and fuel-based essentials like San Miguel or JG Summit were badly hit, such that these conglomerates' ROICs fell below their cost of capital, making them value destroyers. Um, on the other hand, those that were focused on fuel on non-fuel-based essentials uh, like property, banking, power generation, utilities, and food manufacturing and distribution continue to preserve or create value during the pandemic. These are Aboitis Equity Ventures, um, SM Investments, and Ayala Corp. So I guess, do you see any up and rising uh, staff, uh, smaller companies, uh, film tech, tech names uh, disrupting, disrupting the conglomerate business space? Um, right now, um, most of the tech initiatives are really being driven by the big three banks and the top two telco players, which all belong to uh, one of the family-owned conglomerates. So there have been emerging new players in the retail space for a while now, um, like Pure Gold or Mary Mart. Uh, but I think the rising participation is a function of a growing pie rather than a weakening player. Um, so, so far, although 2020 was a difficult year, we do not see any of the nine major conglomerates losing foot in a significant way, uh, mainly because balance sheets are fairly under-leveraged. Among the conglomerates, which one is your top pick right now and which ones uh, uh, don't you not like? Within the conglomerate space, um, Ayala Corp is definitely our top pick. Uh, we think the NAV story, NAV growth story is pretty solid and in a way pandemic-proof uh, because they are pursuing a green-powered um, expansions in the power sector, and then there's the recovery on um, the property segment as well. 
Um, we're a little bit wary of the discretionary-based conglomerates, um, namely, let's say, GT Capital, which is auto-based, and Alliance Global, which is mainly hinged on liquor and um, gaming. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in uh, Chi Wei. Uh, so, Chi Wei, I think the Malaysian government has announced plans for the 5G infrastructure. Um, you know, could you explain you know, um, what this means really for the telcos and for us consumers? Yeah, so essentially, uh, so just a quick uh, rundown. So the government has announced that uh, uh, it will uh, get an SPV, 100% government-owned, uh, to implement and manage the 5G infrastructure for 10 years. So essentially, they will operate via a wholesale model, meaning uh, capacity will be sold to the telcos. So all telcos will be allowed access uh, with the rates and terms being regulated. So, uh, so essentially what it means uh, for consumers, uh, really not major difference. So essentially, there will only be one 5G network. So there will be no uh, network uh, quality differentiation. So each of the telcos uh, will, I suppose, just uh, do their marketing. Um, in terms of uh, what it means to the telcos, for the moment, it is a bit too early to say, given the lack of details. I think this move essentially caught all the telcos by surprise. Hmm. So uh, we'll need to wait for further clarity. So I guess, um, you know, why is, what are the pros and cons of this particular SPV structure? And um, how, how does it compare with other countries? Do other countries have the same model? And, and what were the telcos expecting? Uh, the pros uh, essentially from having this uh, infra code, single infra code, is that it uh, minimizes uh, duplication of resources. So of course, a 5G deployment can be costly. So, uh, so just having one person to do it uh, would probably be most economical. Uh, but the issue, the contentious point here is that whether this infra code needs to be wholly owned by the government, I think that one is uh, at the moment creating quite a lot of debate. So in most countries, typically, uh, you know, 5G infra has been rolled out by the telcos themselves, you know, either you know, one or two networks. So so this, uh, what Malaysia is practicing is currently quite unique. This is typically a model, you know, reserved for uh, fiber deployment. Are you able to assess now in your, which of the Malaysian telcos will benefit most from this kind of a 5G infrastructure design, and which may lose out? Yeah, so uh, very conceptually, I think the clear uh, beneficiary will be Telecom Malaysia. Essentially, 5G deployment will need uh, fiber and Telecom Malaysia is the largest fiber owner in the country. So definitely you should give, uh, you should see more uh, higher fiber demand. Uh, in terms of losers, uh, again, uh, very superficially, if you think about it uh, with no more network quality differentiation, so meaning uh, the telcos that currently rely on their superior networks should would theoretically stand to lose out. So the likes of your Maxis, for example, which is perceived to have the best network quality for now, as well as the Cellcom, which has the widest network coverage. So these two potentially on a relative basis, uh, you know, might lose out. <laughs> 